Well, it's a great privilege to be with you, brethren and sisters and friends. It's a couple of years or more, isn't it, since I was here, and I always come back to Gaisley with fond memories. Now, tonight I want to talk to you about this uh, topic that you've already, the title of which you've already seen, The Man who went to hell and came back. And what is this all about? Well, I want to deal with you on the question of hell, eternal torment. As you no doubt know, amongst the Protestant Christians of the world today, this belief is held very strongly, eternal torment in hellfire. And for one not to believe that, he's almost brushed off as if he's not a Christian. And I find that there are many Seventh-day Adventists who have never heard the Bible exposition of this question of hell. And I'm presenting this so that you may be able to use it yourselves as you meet other people who need to have the answer. Maybe you've noticed recently the Church of England has... uh, come to the place where they are admitting that the question of hell is uh, the same as what we believe and have taught through the years. It's taken them a long time, hasn't it? At any rate, so what is this question? Hellfire, is it a farce or is it a furnace? What does scripture teach concerning the fate of those who rebel against God? Now, Scripture shows us that there are two destinies awaiting mankind, and no one would disagree with that, I'm sure, here tonight. John 3.16 tells us what those two destinies are. And what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him... Now, here we have the two destinies should not perish, that's one, but, what's the next one? But have everlasting life. Now there it's as clear as day. We either perish or we have everlasting life or we perish. Very clear, isn't it? And yet the Protestant world goes right against that famous verse which everybody in the Christian world loves. 1 John 5.12 declares, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son, what does it say then? Hath not life. There is no life in the future unless one has the Son of God. So that's very, very clear in Scripture. Now, on the other hand, we find that wrath does await the unsaved. And what is this wrath? And when is it going to be? Romans 5, 8 and 9 declares, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God for that. Much more than being now justified by his blood, that is declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through him. Now there's something to be saved from, and it says here in this verse we're saved from wrath. So, what is this wrath from which we will be saved through the acceptance of Jesus Christ? In John 3 36 says this He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. There it is again. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life. He won't see life. But now notice, but the wrath of God abides on him. What does this mean? The wrath of God abides on him. First of all, let's ask the question, when does God's wrath come upon those who rebel against God? In Matthew 3, verse 7, John the Baptist, in preaching, remember, to the Jews of his day, said this, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So the wrath of God that's to come upon the unbeliever 
is to come. It's future, you see. And 2 Peter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now notice the other. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So the time of the wrath of God here is the time of judgment, you see. The time of judgment to be punished. Now when is this? Some believe that after or at death we, are going to, we go to either heaven or to hell and that's where the punishment begins. But now notice this, Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto men once to die and after this, what's it say? The judgment. The judgment is after death. This is speaking of the final judgment, you see, of the unsaved after death. Now, what is this punishment in the judgment after death? What is it? Psalm 9, verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Now you can understand why some people begin to draw wrong conclusions. They're turned into hell. And their view of hell is one of eternal torment. This leads us to the question, what is hell? Let me read you the popular conception of hell as is taught in some quarters today. This is an official version of hell. Later I'll tell you from whence this comes. It's from a book of 450 pages entitled Tracks for Spiritual Reading and published by a particular publishing company in the United States. And uh, it has words of approba approbation by Vicar General William Meacher. And he says, I've carefully read over this little volume for children and have found nothing whatever in it contrary to the doctrines of holy faith. So, you see, this is something that is quite orthodox. It is official. Now, notice the description of hell, the sight of hell. This is the first, the, the one of the chapters, the terrible judgment, and the other one, the sight of hell. And in talking about the sight of hell, the author says, In hell there are not two or three hundred prisoners only. Millions on millions are shut up there. They are tormented with the most frightful pains. These dreadful pains make them furious. The fury gives them strength such as we never saw. Look at the floor of hell. It's red hot like red hot iron. The floor blazes up to the roof. The walls are red hot. The roof of hell is like a sheet of blazing fire. Take a spark out of the kitchen fire, throw it into the sea, and it will go out. Take a little spark out of hell, less than a pinhead, and throw it into the ocean. It will not go out. In one moment it would dry up all the waters of the ocean and set the whole world in a blaze. Listen to the tremendous, the horrible uproar of millions and millions and millions of tormented creatures mad with the fury of hell. Oh, the screams of fear, the groanings of horror, the yells of rage, the cries of pain, the shouts of agony, the shrieks of despair of millions on millions. There you hear them roaring like lions, hissing like serpents, howling like dogs, wailing like dragons. There you hear the gnashing of teeth and the fearful blasphemies of the devils. Above all, you hear the roaring of the thunders of God's anger, which shakes hell to its foundations. But there's another sound. There is in hell a sound like that of many waters as if the rivers and oceans of the world were pouring themselves with a great splash down on the floor of hell. Is it then really the sound of waters? It is. Are the rivers and oceans of the earth pouring themselves into hell? No. What is it then? 
It's the sound of oceans of tears running from the countless millions of eyes. They cry because the smoke torments them. They cry because they're in darkness. They cry because they've lost the beautiful heaven. They be cry because the sharp fire burns them. Little child, it's better to cry one tear of repentance now than to cry millions of tears in hell. This is official. Hard to believe, isn't it? Hard to believe. This is, this is the version of hell. Now notice this. There are some... But, but what is this, that dreadful, sickening smell? There are some diseases so bad, such as cancers and ulcers, that people cannot bear to breathe the air in the house where they are. But what is the smell of death in hell? If one single body was taken out of hell and laid on the earth, in that same moment every living creature on the earth would sicken and die. Such is the smell of death from one body in hell. What then will be the smell of death from countless billions and millions of bodies laid in hell? <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Listen to this one. The devil gave Job one stroke, only one stroke. That one stroke was so terrible it covered all his body with sores and ulcers. That one stroke made Job look so frightful his friends didn't recognize him. That one stroke was so terrible that for seven days and seven nights his friends didn't speak a word but sat crying and wondering and thinking what a terrible stroke the devil can give. Little child, if you go to hell, there will be a devil at your side to strike you. He will go on striking you every minute forever and ever without ever stopping. The first stroke will make your body as bad as the body of Job, covered from head to foot with sores and ulcers. The second will make your body twice as bad as Job. The third will make your body three times as bad as the body of Job. The fourth stroke will make your body four times as bad. How then will your body be after the devil has been striking at every moment for a hundred million of ye millions of years without stopping? <laughs> Tragic, isn't it? Fancy being, teaching little children. And I could go on and on. Have you heard enough? <laughs> yes, it's terrible. But it goes on and on. Yes, based on fear. So, what is hell then? What does the Bible mean by hell? Now, on the board, I want to put some of these things, particularly for the sake of the video, what and where is hell? Let the Bible tell us what hell is. And we find that in Scripture, there are four different words for hell. Four different Bible words. And they mean different things. In fact, there are three different hells brought to view in Scripture. The first one is what is called Tartarus. In the original, Second Peter 2 verse 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, speaking of Lucifer and his rebellion way back, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. That word hell is different from other words for hell in the Bible. It is Tartarus in the Greek. It's used only once in Scripture. Tartarus. And what does it mean? Well, it's the place of evil spirits. It's a place of darkness, the scripture shows, where the rebel angels were cast, and from Tartarus they attacked our world. And many scholars are convinced that this refers to outer space where Satan and his angels, or Lucifer and his angels, were originally cast. Outer space, a place of darkness. So that's the first word for hell in Scripture. 
that we want to bring to your attention. Only once is it used. Now, the second term for hell in Scripture is one that is more widely known. There are two words covering this particular place. The Hebrew word is Sheol, and the Greek equivalent is Hades. And what does it mean? It means the grave or the pit. The grave or the pit. Let me give you scriptural evidence for this. First Corinthians 15.55, the apostle makes the statement under inspiration. He says, speaking of the victory song that the redeemed will sing when they are resurrected from the dead at the second advent, They sing, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The margin for grave says hell. O hell, where is thy victory? So hell and the grave, you see, mean one and the same in this verse. It is Hades, the Greek word Hades. O hell, O grave, where is thy victory? Hell, we understand, is an old English word that is still used, I understand, in England. And it means, it has been used way back in the past, to cover. And of course, when a person is buried, he's covered, isn't he? And that's where the word hell in the English language comes from. Uh, In some parts of England, I understand, they use that word hell. For instance, when they they engage in, um, well, a common expression I've heard is, I'm going out to hell the potatoes, to cover them. To cover the potatoes out in the field, you know. And uh, so there's the significance of that word. Now, I want to bring to your attention the man who went to hell and came back. And the one who went to this to hell was this particular hell. The man that went to the grave and came back. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, St. Peter after proving that Jesus was of Nazareth was the true Messiah, he quotes this prediction concerning the Messiah from the Old Testament. And he says this, because, he quotes from David's psalm, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The Greek word for hell there is Hades. The Hebrew word from which he quotes in the Psalms is Sheol. There it is. And the prediction was that Messiah would not be left in the grave. He wouldn't be left in hell, but he would come back. And, of course, as we all know, on the third day, Jesus in triumph returned from hell. He returned from the grave. So he is the one who went to hell and came back. And, of course, that being so, he would be an authority in regard to the question of hell. And in the scripture which he has inspired his servants to write, he tells us the truth in regard to this great question, this vexing question of hell and hell fire. And we need to remember, do we not, there that there are hundreds and hundreds of people down through the years who have been turned against God and turned to atheism because of this this uh, this question of hellfire and eternal torment for thinking people uh, hearing that our great God is one who plunges those who displease him into eternal torment draw the conclusion that he must be a monster and he would be a monster a monstrous God and so they turn away from him and turn to atheism And many, many very talented people have turned to atheism through the years and have done great damage to Christianity because of the error in connection with the question of hell. All right, so now this means also that everyone who dies and is buried goes down to this particular hell. Most people don't realise that, do they? 
But that's the truth of it, you see. And thus, when they are brought forth from the grave in the mighty resurrection of the just, they sing that song, O grave, O hell, where is thy victory? What a wonderful song that's going to be. Now, the fourth word for hell is a different word, and this is the one that causes problems. This is the word on which, which is used by so many to... Uh, to draw wrong conclusions in connection with the question of hell and eternal torment. It is a word called Gehenna. And we find this brought to view by Jesus in uh, Matthew, or rather Mark, chapter 9, 43 and 44. And let's read this. And let's try and get the significance of it. And here Jesus says, If thy hand offend thee, Cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Now, of course, he's speaking here figuratively. He doesn't mean the literally literal cutting off of the hands, but it's, he's, he's speaking in a figurative sense. And then he continues in verse 44. It says, speaking of this place called hell, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into, to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. And the Christian world has taken that to represent the fact that hell is a place where the fires never go out. It's eternally burning. And that those who are unsaved, that is where they will end. This word is used 12 times in the New Testament. This word, Gehenna, translated hell. Now, what is the meaning of Gehenna? My friends, Gehenna was the name of a valley on the southern side of Jerusalem, a vale or valley. It is still there today, but it's mostly been filled in. But it was the rubbish tip of old Jerusalem, a vale or valley of Jerusalem. I've walked through it, as have many others, and so we could we could truthfully say we've walked through hell, <laughs> gone to hell and come back. And that valley of Jerusalem was the refuse tip in the days of Jesus. And uh, carcasses from the temple, from the offerings, the sacrifices, were cast into this valley. They kept fires burning continually to burn the rubbish, and not only that, if the, the, the things that weren't burnt, particularly the flesh and the carcasses, they swarmed with maggots. And if what the fire didn't burn or what the maggots didn't consume, the worm, the fire consumed. And Jesus takes this place and uses it as a symbol of the final lot of the unsaved. He uses it as a symbol. Now some folk hold the view that where it says their worm dieth not, that means the soul doesn't die. My friends, nowhere does scripture tell us that the soul is a worm or that a worm represents the soul. That's purely private interpretation. It's referring to the maggots. And the fires kept burning continually to stifle the smell. That's what Gehenna was. And anything that went into Gehenna, it never came out. It was totally destroyed. Now Jesus uses that to represent the final lot of the unsaved. And the final lot of the unsaved is total destruction. And Gehenna was a symbol of total destruction. Total destruction. Now, let's notice what, how Jesus 
elsewhere confirmed this. The Protestant world in general has held, and not only the Protestant world, but the Catholic world, that man possesses a soul that is mortal or immortal. Immortal. I was brought up with the view that every man has a, an immortal soul. My mother taught me, son, you have an immortal soul. But the animals haven't got an immortal soul. I remember I used to look at our, one of our cows, one of the pet cows, when I was a little boy. And I used to look at its eyes and think to myself, no, you haven't got a soul. <laughs> but here, notice what Jesus says. Matthew 10, 28. He says, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. Gehenna represents the destruction of the body and the soul. It represents total destruction. And those are the words of Jesus. Now, notice it says here, though, some argue, say, well, now, but which speaks there of unquenchable fire, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Doesn't that back up the view of eternal torment? Well, now, what does quench mean? What does it mean? According to Chambers' Encyclopedia, it means to put out before it burns out. What do we mean by that? Well, let me illustrate. Here I have a box of matches and I have a sheet of paper. And we will light this and I'm going to try and quench it. Now if the tent catches a light, you'll have to quench that. Now just a minute and we will... This time, first time I light this, we will... Now there it is. I'm going to quench it. See that? That's quenching. It means putting it out before it burns out. This time, I'm going to light it, and we won't quench it. It will be unquenchable fire this time. We won't put it out. Let's see what happens. Does it burn for all eternity? Because it's unquenchable, no one quench no one's going to quench that. Unquenchable, we hope. Let it burn. Don't put it out. No one put it out. No one quenched it. Does it mean eternal fire? No, it doesn't, you see. And it, the fires and the total destruction that is finally to be the lot of the unsaved, the fire will not be put out before it has done its work. That's the significance of quench, you see. Now, let me give you uh, evidence of this from the scripture itself. I read Jeremiah 17:27, And here God says this through the prophet. Concerning Jerusalem, if you will not hearken to me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. See that? Not be quenched. Did that mean it would never go out? Now here... Notice the full form. Second Chronicles 36, 19 and 21. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, which we just quoted, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now, my friends, is Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, still burning? No. But it was destroyed with unquenchable fire. You see, it doesn't mean eternally burning. What is the last quote? The last quote, 2 Chronicles 36, 19 and 21. 
But now, what about where the scripture speaks of everlasting fire? Does it speak of that? Yes, it does. Matthew 25, 40 and 41. And this is another text that is used to try and uphold the doctrine of eternal torment. And notice what it says. The king shall answer and say to them, this is speaking of the judgment, you know, when the sheep and the goats are divided. Verily I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now there you are, everlasting fire. How do we explain that? Let's look at the scripture. First of all, it means everlasting in its effects. It doesn't mean everlastingly burning, but the everlasting fire is everlasting in its effects. Now, how do we know that? I turn now to Jude, the seventh verse of the little book of Jude, tucked there toward the the end of the New Testament, tucked away in there. And in speaking of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, by fire, remember, Here the apostle says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. My friends, are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? (coughs) They're not. No one knows where they even are. It's believed that they are at the bottom of the southern portion of the Dead Sea, which was once not covered by water, which was the Salt Sea, or the Vale of Sidon. Of course, some will argue about that. But one thing we're sure of and that is that there are no fires burning in the Jordan Valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. So you see then, the eternal fire we suggest means eternal in its effects. Sodom and Gomorrah are gone, gone forever, totally destroyed, you see. But now there's something else about this I'd like you to notice. And while I'm on this, let me put this down here. Total destruction of body and soul. Now let me put this here, unquenchable fire. Meaning, impossible to put out before it burns out. Now, everlasting fire. What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, in its effects. But I think there's a a fuller explanation of everlasting fire than this one than that one. While it is true and while it is scriptural, there is something else that is significant about this. The scripture tells us that our great creator God is bathed in fire. He's bathed in glory and that glory is in the form of fire, literal fire. Ezekiel 1.4, speaking of the appearance of God, it says there was a fire enfolding itself. Daniel 7, 9 says his throne was like the fiery flame. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. He is surrounded with fire. Our great God. Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire, that is to evil. When Christ comes, fire devours before him. You see, that fire is eternal fire. It's everlasting fire. And the scripture says in Revelation 29, in the destruction, the final destruction of the unsaved, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That fire, my friends, is everlasting. You see, it comes from God. And I believe that's the significance of everlasting fire. It is fire that envelops God. 
and the glory of God consumes all those that rebel against God. Okay, so now we come to the next, uh, the next uh, objection. And this is chapter 25 again of St. Matthew and in verse 46. And here speaking of the same people whom Christ condemned to everlasting fire. Notice this, verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now many folk, when they read that, they say, there you are. Eternal torment. Everlasting punishment. You see? Now it does not say everlasting punishing. It says everlasting punishment. It doesn't say continual pain. So the question is, what is this punishment of the unsaved? What is the punishment? Is it torment? Or what is it? Whatever it is, it's everlasting. It never ceases. Romans 6.23, speaking of the lot of the unsaved, says the wages of sin is death. That's the punishment of the unsaved. Death, you see? So if the punishment is everlasting, it means everlasting death. Now, do other scriptures confirm that? Yes, they do. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and notice what it says. To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with these mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished. Now notice, who shall be punished with everlasting torment, destruction. Punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So my friends, the, the, the uh, everlasting punishment is very clear. Scripture is very clear. It is everlasting death. Eternal death or eternal destruction. And the Anglican Church has recently discovered that that's so. After all these hundreds of years, it was in the scripture all the time. Yeah. Everlasting destruction. Now, where is the location of this destruction? Where is it located? I read now Revelation 21, 7 and 8, and here it tells us where it is located. 7 and 8. And it says here, He that overcomes shall inherit all things. Isn't that beautiful? All things. And I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Now this is spoken of as the lake of fire. They have their part in the lake of fire. Now that is the location of the everlasting destruction. And many, but many believe that the lake of fire is something that is, that's hell. That's eternal torment, eternal burning. Is it? Is it? Now notice the next part of that verse. It says the lake of fire, which is the second death. The lake of fire is death. The second death. There are two deaths in Scripture. Remember the first death that all die and from which all return. We have no say. We're all coming back from death. Jesus said all those that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or judgment or punishment. 
We're all coming back. We have no say. But we do have a say as to when we come back. We either come back in the resurrection of life or the resurrection to damnation. And the resurrection to damnation means the lake of fire, finally, which is the second death. And the death is eternal death. Eternal destruction. All right. Now, where is this lake of fire? Where is it? Is it some place way down in the heart, in the centre of the earth, of the planet, where all the unsaved are finally going to be plunged? Where is it? Proverbs 11.31 Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed. Or rather, perhaps before I read that, let me read first of all 2 Peter 3.7. And here we have very told us very plainly where the lake of fire is going to be. And it says here, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, now in existence, the current heaven and earth, atmospheric heaven and earth, which are now, by the same word, the same word of God, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What's perdition? Destruction. My friends, the heavens and the earth are reserved for the time of destruction of the ungodly. The lake of fire involves this planet. This planet. In what way? It, notice what Proverbs 11.31 says. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth. Much more the wicked and the sinner. How is the righteous recompensed in the earth? What we will inherit, if we're faithful, the earth made new. We'll inherit it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But now notice, much more the wicked and the sinner. His lot, his final lot, will be in the earth. This earth, this planet, you see. And uh, Malachi 4, 1 to 3 says this, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, saith the Lord, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And verse 3, And you, speaking of God's people, shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this saith the Lord of hosts now my friends how will we tread them down they'll be ashes they'll be consumed in this old world when God purifies it after the judgment and from out of the fire he brings forth a new heaven and a new earth and when God's people, when the redeemed tread upon the earth made new underneath their very feet, in the very soil, will be the ashes of the unsaved. Eternal death, eternal destruction, the second death. There it is. It is so clear in Scripture, so clear. And in Psalm 37, notice what it says, For evildoers shall be cut off, and those that wait, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth, the earth made new. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. There's no place of eternal torment. No place. They shall not be, yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the wicked, verse 20, shall perish. The enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, shall they consume away. Meaning there's no more vestige of the unsaved. It is complete and utter destruction. The Gehenna. 
you see. So there we have the location of the lake of fire. The lake of fire is our burning planet, our planet on fire. And you know, my friends, when we look at this old planet of ours and the pollution, it will certainly need it, won't it? <laughs> it will need to be purified in order for God to make it a, a fit abode for the eternal dwelling place of his people. But now what about the scripture where it says here in Revelation 20 that they are tormented forever and ever? Does it say that? It certainly does. For notice now what it says, Revelation 20 verse 10. And here in speaking of Satan and his final lot, it says in verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now what are we going to do with that? All said has been completely nullified by that something. What's it mean? The devil's going to be tormented forever and ever. Now, not only that, I turn now to Revelation 14. And notice what it says. Speaking of those who reject the third angel's message, the special message of God in the last days, notice what it says. It says, The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image now what are we going to do about that you can understand my friends why some people conclude that the bible contradicts itself and it does seem to contradict itself but when we find a contradiction in the Bible, what it should do, lead us to do is to investigate it. And often, you know, I'm quite convinced God puts things on his word to attract attention, like apparent contradictions, to lead us to investigate and to study and to find the truth. So what is the significance of this? Well, first of all, concerning the rejecters of God's last message, it represents those... The, represents the fact that their punishment, and it says there that they receive the wrath of God, and the wrath of God, it says, is poured out in the seven last plagues. The seven last plagues continue for a period of one year, and so day and night for that 12 months, the unsaved suffer. They suffer torment. And that is what Revelation 14 is talking about day and night but it says forever forever and ever so we've got to look at this question forever and ever what does it mean forever and ever and so we must go back to scripture how does scripture explain the term forever and ever Let's go back to the Old Testament, Exodus 30, 21, verse 6. And here we have one, another, the first instance I'd like to bring to your attention. Here, in speaking of those who were voluntary slaves and who uh, desired to continue working with their master and not to accept their freedom, the Lord said, gave instruction to the master that he was um, to take the servant and bore a hole through the love of his ear, and that would indicate that he would serve him for the rest of his life. And what does the scripture say? It says he shall serve him forever. Forever. How long was that? It would mean for the rest of his life. As long as life exists. You see? Let's notice another one, First Chronicles 28.4. It tells us there that David was king over Israel forever. How long was forever? The next chapter, 29, verse 27 says, David reigned over Israel 40 years. 
So there the forever was 40 years. Why does it say that? Today we use that term meaning for all eternity. But my friends, the scripture doesn't always mean that. You see? Let's give you another example. Jonah 2 verse 6. In speaking of when he was in the whale's belly at the bottom of the sea, he said, the earth with her bars was about me forever. It probably seemed like it. <laughs> forever. And But notice in Jonah 1.17 it says, it was for three days and three nights. So the forever, you see, was three days and three nights. How do you explain it? Revelation 20, Satan tormented forever and ever. Will he be? Notice what the prophet Ezekiel declares concerning the fate of Satan. 28 verse 18. Here the Lord addressing Satan says, Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. In the great final judgment, Satan will be compelled to materialize. And the redeemed will witness his destruction. And God will bring it about by a fire starting within him and they'll see him brought to ashes no doubt to help the redeemed to realize that he's gone forever. There'll never again be a Lucifer. Never again will there be rebellion. Now that's the end of Lucifer. So you see, when it says he's tormented forever and ever, it's until he's brought to ashes. So what's the significance of this term forever and ever? My friends, it means a continuous period of time. A continuous period. But it, the length of it is determined by the context. It is, it's determined by the length of life that he lives or that, that, that continues forever and ever. A continuous time period. When it's applied to God, it's for all eternity. When it's applied to the redeemed and their inheritance, for all eternity. When it's applied to Satan, his punishment is continuous until he comes to the end of his existence. It's while life exists. God's life exists. It's never unending from everlasting to everlasting, forever means forever with God. But with Satan, it means while life exists. And so it is with the unsaved. You see? As long as life exists, their punish this, punish this punishment is. And for how long will the unsaved endure torment? We are told that some will be destroyed in a moment of time. No doubt the great majority... God will snuff them out. But others, of course, will suffer torment, maybe, for some time. Injustice. So that's the significance of forever and ever, you see. It does not mean for all eternity, necessarily. Now let me also bring to your attention... Another important fact in connection with the plan of salvation. My friends, Jesus Christ is the substitute for the sinner. Is that correct? That is the teaching of the word of God. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, says the Apostle Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. My friends, when Jesus died, he suffered death for every man. He paid the penalty for every man, the penalty for sin. 
He suffered Gehenna in our stead. Hebrews 2.9, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. What death was it that Jesus endured for guilty man? The first death or the second death? He endured the pangs of the second death. The death that involved separation from God. Jesus suffered Gehenna, the pangs of Gehenna, on behalf of guilty man. Now, let's ask this question. For how long did Jesus suffer? For how long did he suffer? If the lot of the unsaved is eternal torment, and Jesus suffered in place of guilty man, then his sufferings would have to be eternal. Were his sufferings eternal? Is Jesus now suffering the pangs of the second death? No, he's not. And this shows us, my friends, that the lot of the unsaved cannot be eternal torment. So, he suffered Gehenna in man's place. His pains were not eternal. And so it will be with the unsaved. Their pangs, their pain, their torment will not be eternal. So there we have, in a nutshell, the quest, the great, this great question of hell and hellfire. But of course, remember, this experience will be so terrible, so fearful. It broke, remember, the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will bring about the destruction, finally, the unsaved. But when a man accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as his saviour, when he accepts his suffering on his behalf, he goes free. free. He escapes. As the, as the verse so beautifully says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. May God help us to really know we have accepted the Lord Jesus as our great substitute so that in eternal life will be ours absolutely when the great day comes is my sincere prayer let's bow our heads gracious father we thank thee for the great plan of salvation we thank thee for thy word that shows us what is to come the great reward that you offer us and uh, the final lot of the unsaved. We thank thee that thou art a great God of love and that thou dost not plunge men into eternal torment. We thank thee that thou art a just and a merciful and fair and reasonable God. We bless thee for this great knowledge that you've given us concerning thyself. And we accept thee, Lord, dear Lord, again anew. We accept the Lord Jesus again as our Saviour tonight. Come, we pray, into our hearts as we give ourselves to thee and help us to be the people that we ought to be as a result of the glorious gospel that you have provided for us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? The quote you were quoting at the beginning about, about hell, where you didn't tell us where it was from. Oh, that's right, yes. Uh, that comes from a book published by the Excelsior Publishing Company. Let me give it to you. 
called Tracks for Spiritual Reading, published by the Excelsior Publishing House, New York City. And as you have no doubt guessed, it's, it has the words of approbation by Vicar General William Meacher. What organisation would you suggest that is? Roman Catholic. So that is the Roman Catholic version of hell. Mm -hmm. Clear? Sufficient? Thank you.